Lord in prayer. Our blessed Father, we thank you for this evening. And as we approach your holy word, Lord, we do so with fear and trembling, realizing that with what we will be considering tonight, what we will be illuminated by is that which is a matter that we fall short in at so many points in our lives as your people. And so, Lord, we pray this night that you would give us the, the sanctifying grace to hear the truth of your word from Matthew chapter 5 effectually, that there will be categories built in our hearts tonight for what it means to truly deny ourselves, truly die to self. We pray, Lord, that the end result, the outworking of what we will hear this evening from your word will be to the greater good of our sanctification that we will grow in greater self-denial, especially when it comes to those things in our lives that we feel so strongly about are our personal rights. We commit this, Lord, into your hands for the sake of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to take God's holy word and let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start reading at verse 38 to verse 42. Continuing our series, What Did Jesus Say? Where we are looking at recorded texts of scripture in the gospels that are frankly very, very familiar to us. Um, but there are also texts of scripture that have imposed upon them many misinterpretations, misapplications. And tonight is a great example of that in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. Listen to the recorded words of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, holy word of the living God. God. 
there is perhaps nothing more native to our fallen human nature than the feelings of personal vengeance. Due to our innate sinfulness, we are given to passions which take far too much thought for ourselves than others, and thus we are ever ready at a moment's notice to defend our honor, our reputation, our individual rights if we believe they have suffered harm. The act of revenge, therefore, is not unnatural to any of us, but instinctively embedded in our sinful human makeup. However, in our popular culture, the passions for personal vengeance are actually celebrated as something to be admired as heroic and, in many cases, even American. Just think of how many movies since the 1970s especially have built their storylines on the main character suffering some dreaded loss to which turns him to enact revenge on those who inflicted the harm. But what's more is that this retaliation they took upon their enemies was praised in the storyline as their right to do. And for our culture at large, we idolize this kind of hero who will stand up for what is his no matter who gets hurt in the process. The reason such a person like this is applauded is because retaliation is simply the natural extension of our base, selfish nature. But despite how ingrained and accepted the feelings of vengeance may be in the world, for the Christian, for the child of God, the follower of Christ, such passions counter everything which God's saving grace is doing to remake the redeemed sinner into the image of Jesus Christ. To say this another way, the temptation to retaliate when personally wrong is to be denied and mortified at all costs. To faithfully follow Christ as his church, we must take a far different course than the way of the world when we suffer personal injury, whether by word or deed. Now, with this in mind, I want to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. The principal teaching of this entire passage is that as Christians, we must not be content with merely laying aside feelings of personal retaliation, but rather we should deny ourselves those feelings by demonstrating actions which show the unselfish nature of godly love. Hence, as we approach Matthew 5, 38 through 42, I want us to interrogate our own hearts by asking the following questions. How far have I really died to self when it comes to what I believe are my personal rights? When my honor, my dignity, my reputation is trampled on by others, what is my first response? Do I lash out in anger or do I hold my tongue? And more than holding my tongue, do I show genuine kindness to this person who has hurt me so deeply? Or to put it in the words of Romans chapter 12, 20 to 21, when my enemy is hungry, do I feed him? When he is thirsty, do I give him something to drink? Do I overcome his evil toward me by returning good toward him? 
How far have we really died to our natural inclination to retaliate when we've been personally wronged? Matthew 5, 38-42 will put us all to the test on this particular matter. So then, unpacking this passage for our study, I want us to consider it from two different angles. First, promoting retaliation as civil law. Promoting retaliation as civil law. And then second, prohibiting retaliation as personal vengeance. Prohibiting retaliation as personal vengeance. So to begin with, let's consider our first major point, promoting retaliation as civil law. Looking at verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. These opening words of our Lord are taken directly from the Old Testament scriptures, specifically Exodus 21 verse 24, Leviticus 24 and verse 20, and Deuteronomy 19 and verse 21. The fact that Jesus prefaces this Old Testament passage with the words, you have heard it was said, is once again pointing us to the fact that this particular biblical quotation carried with it a certain amount of Jewish rabbinical baggage which both misquoted and misapplied this Old Testament text. And to be very specific, what the Jewish religious leaders were teaching as to the meaning and application of these words, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was that every man had it within his own right to take out personal revenge on whoever crossed him. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was spun by the Jewish rabbis to give everyone the license for personal vengeance. But biblically and historically, these words promoted nothing even remotely close to what the Jewish rabbinical tradition had passed down. First of all, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth reflected an ancient principle among some of the oldest codes of law. We understand this law by the simple maxim, the punishment must fit the crime. This principle had two great purposes. First, it was given to reduce additional crime. For example, in Deuteronomy 19, verse 20, where this law is given, it is preceded by the hope that when a person is punished for wrongdoing, the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Second, this law was set forth to decrease excessive punishment based on personal vengeance. The punishment for any crime was to match, not exceed, the harm done by the offense itself. But what is of far greater significance for us to understand behind these words, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is that this principle was strictly given as a law to be carried out by the civil justice system. Exodus chapters 21 to 23 focuses entirely on God's provision for Israel's civil law, as do the similar teachings in Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19. And while in some cases the victim of a crime carried out the punishment on his aggressor, yet the trial and sentencing were always the responsibility of duly appointed judges or of a large representative body of citizens. So an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was never meant. It was never meant 
to give license to an individual to become his own judge, jury, and executioner. This law was confined only to the civil justice system of Israel. And because this was its proper context, it was therefore, as John MacArthur observed, a just law because it matched punishment to offense. It was a merciful law because it limited the innate propensity of the human heart to seek retribution beyond what an offense deserved. It was also a beneficent law because it protected society by restraining wrongdoing. However, as already noted, by the time we come to the first century, this civil law of Israel had been greatly perverted into a permit for personal revenge. And frankly, this should not surprise us since the Jewish religious leaders of that day had built an entire system of law based on the standards of their own righteousness as opposed to the righteousness of God. So then driven by self-righteousness, which is rooted in self-centeredness, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth will always be twisted as a standard meant for personal vengeance. The self-righteous heart will never be satisfied with the ruling of justice in meeting out the punishment for a crime. It will always want to take the law into its own hands. This, therefore, was the problem Jesus was confronting here in Matthew 5, 38-42. Retaliation was no longer promoted as a matter of pure civil law. It was no longer believed to be what it was meant to be. Punishment carried out for a crime by the civil magistrates, not the private citizen. And with this understanding, let's now turn to our next major point. From promoting retaliation as civil law, let's now consider prohibiting retaliation as personal vengeance. Look at me in verses 39 to 42. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. As we begin to consider these words of our Lord, it must be stated that there has been no passage more misinterpreted and misapplied out of the entire Sermon on the Mount than what we read here. And this is especially true with regard to what Jesus begins by saying, do not resist the one who is evil. When this exhortation has been taken at mere face value with no connection to the rest of God's word, it has been mishandled in the extreme. One such example of this was in the writings of the Russian novelist and social reformer Leo Tolstoy. In his famous book entitled What I Believe, he claimed that after reading and rereading the Sermon on the Mount, he came to understand what the church had never understood for 1,800 years. And right there, you know he's on the wrong track. <laughs> Tolstoy took Jesus' words, do not resist the one who is evil, to mean a blanket 
prohibition against all physical violence to both people and institutions. Fanning this out in application, Tolstoy maintained that to truly follow Christ, there must not be any establishment of governments, law courts, police, or military forces. As long as we would just serve the people, then Tolstoy believed that the criminal would simply give up his crimes and return good for the good shown to him. In short, Tolstoy advocated that there should be no stand taken against evil at all. But is this what Jesus really meant when he commands us, do not resist the one who is evil? Was our Lord teaching that as Christians we are to be nothing but sanctimonious doormats? Was Jesus declaring that evil must be allowed to run its course, never being checked, never being condemned, never being countered? Was, was Christ giving us a blueprint for all societies that they should be run without any law enforcement whatsoever? Leo Tolstoy would obviously answer yes to all of these above questions, but the word of God would declare absolutely not. First of all, when we look at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see a whole campaign, if you will, waged against the evil of this world. Jesus stood against the devil and his evil. He stood against the evil manifested in his own disciples. And he certainly stood forcibly against the evil of the Jewish religious leaders. Second of all, if Jesus intended that we never stand against evil by these words in Matthew 5.39, then how do we explain his clear directives for corrective church discipline in Matthew 18. Our Lord established the fundamental way that sin and evil is to be dealt with within the church by commanding us to confront it and oppose it so that purity will be preserved. And while the goal for corrective church discipline is the restoration of the sinning believer, yet such restoration never ignores the sin committed but calls for its removal by way of personal repentance. Third of all, Consider the example of the early church led by Christ's own apostles. We see the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 5 confronting the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Or the apostle Paul confronting the false teaching of the Judaizers in the Galatian churches. Even opposing Peter's hypocrisy at Antioch and calling for the excommunication of a church member in Corinth. Lastly, we would also affirm that when Jesus commands us, do not resist the one who is evil. This in no way rejected the establishment of governmental authorities. We have only to look at Romans chapter 13 where we are plainly told that it is God who has ordained governments and one great purpose behind this was to punish evil doers. Governments do not wield the sword in vain, Paul says in Romans 13. Moreover, on a more personal level, for the sake of God's righteousness as well as for the sake of human justice, Christians are obligated not only to uphold the law themselves but to insist that others do as well. To report a crime is an act of compassion, righteousness, and godly obedience as well as an act of civil responsibility. To belittle to excuse or hide the wrongdoing of others is not an act of love, 
but an act of wickedness because it undermines civil justice and divine righteousness. So what then did Jesus mean by these words, do not resist the one who is evil? Our Lord is forbidding his followers to be guilty of personal retaliation. Hence, whenever someone wrongs us personally, we are commanded by Christ not to get them back. It is never our place to carry out revenge. Echoing this command of Jesus, the Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 12, 17, and 19. Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. I don't know how plainer it can get than that. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for, <clears throat> for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If vengeance is to be carried out against those who have injured us in any way personally, then we will leave that in God's hands. This is the teaching of Romans 12, 17, and 19. It is not our place, nor is it in our power as individuals to enact retribution. We do not repay evil for evil. We do not say to ourselves in response to the person who has done us wrong, well, you just wait. Payback is coming. I will get even. No. Jesus forbids this kind of spirit in his people. Fanning this out even more, J.C. Ryle, expounding, expounding on our Lord's exhortation, do not resist the evil one or the one who is evil. He said this, a readiness to resent injuries, a quickness in taking offense, a quarrelsome and contentious disposition, a keenness in asserting our rights, all, all are contrary to the mind of Christ. The world may see no harm in these habits of mind, but they do not become the character of the Christian. Our master says, resist not the evil one. So by not resisting the one who is evil is more than just physically refusing to hit back when you've been hit. It is essentially an attitude, a disposition of the heart that is determined and resolved to love those who do you harm by in turn doing them good. It is the constant readiness to treat others the way you want them to treat you. Now, to illustrate more precisely what he means, Jesus goes on in our text to give us four scenarios where our basic human rights could be violated and how we should respond in a non-vengeful way. And let me just say that for the rest of this sermon, we're about to get very un-American. This is so anti-American. The American spirit is nowhere in this text. But the spirit of Christ is. So let's pay attention. In the first place, what do we do when our human dignity is violated? When our human dignity is violated, Jesus tells us in verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
To appreciate this example, we need to understand that in Jewish culture, to slap someone in the face was one of the most degrading and insulting acts a person could do. It was a vicious act of contempt which communicated to the person being slapped that they were less than human. But in response to such an outlandish insult, Jesus commands us not to give an insult in return. Instead, we are to give our other cheek to be slapped as well. Well, what does that mean exactly? What does that mean? This is a figure of speech which points to having a humble, meek, merciful, and gentle disposition to anyone who may malign our character by showing us the worst kind of disrespect. It is the example of our Lord Jesus himself that when he was reviled, what does the scripture tell us? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he uttered no threats, but simply kept entrusting himself to his father who would vindicate his son's honor and dignity. And this is exactly how Jesus expects us to respond when we have to endure personal insults. Let the insults come and show by your response that you feel no need for retaliation because... Listen to this, because your reputation is secure with God as his child. Your reputation is secure with God. He'll take care of that. This is the effect of what our Lord is saying and and, and how we should turn the other cheek. Charles Spurgeon, in his very famous lectures to my students, which was his lectures to these students in his pastor's college. One of the lectures that he gave was entitled The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear. It is a lecture which I personally have read more than any other lecture in that entire book. Why? Because the entire lecture is about how do you handle personal criticism? Charles Spurgeon's general principle was you turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. But the the biggest point out of the whole lecture, which if you were to see my copy of the book, you would see this point is underlined and highlighted and circled. Okay, it, it is like made an indelible impact on me. And I've gone to it many times and I've shared it with many pastor friends who knew nothing about this lecture. And I'm going to say, and you're reformed? And you don't, anyway. But in this, in this part of the lecture, Charles Spurgeon talks about that dreaded sin that none of us want to be the victims of, the sin of slander. The sin of those who would do everything in their power to destroy your reputation by telling lies about you publicly behind your back. This is the violation of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Spurgeon very wisely said, you'll never win with the slanderer. You'll never win. 
So what do you do? What do you do? If you're never going to have victory over the slanderer, what do you do? Charles Spurgeon said, here is, here is the general rule. Keep your mouth closed and leave your reputation with God. He said, God will take care of your reputation. You keep silent. Now, you and I know um, that's rather hard to do. When people are running their mouth behind my back and they're telling all kinds of vicious lies about me, isn't it my right? My right to defend myself? My, my, my right to make sure, hey, um, no, it's not that, it's this. You need to hear this. Okay, well, Spurgeon said, there's only one exception to this rule. And that exception is, is if what's being said about you has reached such a level of publicity that it might do you well not to be quiet, but you might need to say something definitively to counter the slander. Otherwise, your silence may be misconstrued as guilt. But he said, but that's not the rule, that's the exception. The rule is, give them the other cheek. You stay silent, you do as Jesus did. Remember, Jesus was before his accusers as what? As a lamb is before its shearers. Silent, silent. And we all know, nobody here can do that naturally. That takes grace, power that is from above, that is not from us. That is wise, wise counsel. Our reputation is very secure with God. He will take care of your reputation. In the second place, what do we do when our personal security is defrauded? What do we do when our personal security is defrauded? In verse 40, Jesus says to us, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The first thing we must understand about this illustration is that our Lord is not referring to a person who has been robbed. Rather, the context is in a court of law where you are legitimately being sued. Now, the point Christ is driving home in this scenario is that if a legal judgment has been made against us for a certain amount, then we should be willing to offer even more in order to show our regret for any wrong we did and to show that we are not bitter or resentful against the one who has sued us. And to appreciate how radical this illustration was, we must understand that to be sued for your tunic was to be required to hand over your shirt, but to voluntarily surrender your cloak was unheard of and in those days unthinkable. For one thing, no Jewish court could have required a man's cloak since that was his most valuable piece of clothing. The Mosaic law forbid the courts to do this as a permanent loss. So then for Jesus to say to his disciples that they should give up their cloak 
as well was clearly a call to monumental self-denial. But our Lord wants to press upon us all. Better to be defrauded than to be guilty of bitterness and resentment. Who thinks like this? I mean, seriously. Who thinks like this? The natural man certainly doesn't. And in our natural flesh, we definitely don't think like this. But what is God always looking at? The heart. The heart. All the issues of life, Proverbs 4, 23 says, all the issues of life spring from the heart. God is looking at the heart. God cares more about the state of your heart than whether or not you have your coat. See? That's really important to make that clear. In the third place, what do we do when our personal liberty is molested? Now, this is about to get really un-American. Reading verse 41, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This illustration points to one of the most degrading acts for Jews living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. In those days, Roman law gave a soldier the right to force a civilian to carry his pack for a Roman mile, which was 1,000 paces. The law was designed to give the soldier rest. However, for the Jewish civilian, this law only reminded him that the people of Israel were an oppressed people, a nation in bondage. So this illustration Jesus gave could not have been more scandalous to his own Jewish disciples. But our Lord's fundamental point was this. When you're robbed of some of your cherished liberty, don't retaliate, surrender more. Sinclair Ferguson spelled out the spirit of this scenario with, the great, with great effect when he wrote this. Look at this. Ferguson said, when you are drafted, Jesus says, and have walked the 1,000 paces required by the Roman regulations, keep going. Carry the load one more mile. No soldier has the right to make you do that, do it voluntarily. Thus, he may see that you have another emperor and belong to another empire with principles that are infinitely stronger than the laws of Rome. Mm, that's well said. That's well said because what's being shown there is the power of God. The power of God in the believer that that unbeliever knows nothing about. But it will make an impact on them. That's a witness. That's a witness. The implication behind what Christ is teaching us by this illustration is that our witness as his followers matters more than our personal liberty. And what a point to be pressed upon Christians in America where in some evangelical circles, personal liberty as an American is cherished more than personal holiness as a Christian. I can guarantee you this. There'll be nobody on Fox News uh, repeating this, this passage. Nobody. As much as they like to talk about God. 
We need to understand an important truth in this context. It takes no grace to stand up for your rights as a citizen. That takes no grace. But it takes supernatural grace to love and do good to those who have taken your rights away. Only a Christian can be this way. Only a Christian. And this is the great point Jesus is making to us by this illustration. This is how otherworldly you are, Christian. Get a clue as to who you really are now. It's a new creation. You're not of this world. And here's an example of the otherworldliness of your spirit now, of who you are in Christ, joined in union with him. I mean, this is really where you'd say the rubber meets the road. These, these, these are very, very practical we love that word practical. Well, here's practical for you. Real life. Real life illustrations. In the fourth and final place, what do we do when our personal property is infringed? What do we do when our personal property is infringed? Our Lord answers this in verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This last illustration gives... Jesus gives to help us understand what he, what he means by not resisting the one who is evil, it deserves some careful qualifications, okay? If we were to take these words of Christ with an absolute mechanical literalism, then as one commentator put it, there would soon be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing and another of prosperous idlers and thieves. So we do need to be careful in how we're interpreting this. But, of course, this is not the kind of sacrifice Jesus is expecting nor demanding of his people. What Christ is calling for is a readiness to give generously, not to the professional beggar, plenty of those in the world, but to the genuinely needy, even when it is risky. In other words, a Christian should be marked by a spirit of selfless generosity that will seek to meet the valid needs of people who are really hurting and must have help. Adding a few more layers of understanding to this very last illustration of Christ, Martin Lloyd-Jones observed, what Jesus is considering is the tendency of a man because of self and a self-centered spirit not to help those who are in real need. It is this holding on to what is mine that he is concerned about. We can therefore put it like this. We must always be ready to listen and to give a man the benefit of the doubt. It is not something we do mechanically or thoughtlessly. We must think and say, if this man is in need, it is my business to help him if I am in a position to do so. I may be taking a risk, but if he is in need, I will help him. So here then is a true picture of a genuine Christian who is faithfully following Christ in the face of having his dignity insulted, his security defrauded, his liberty molested, and his property infringed. What does a true Christian do? He bears a spirit. He bears a spirit in both his words and deeds of meekness. Humility, mercy, and generosity. 
To say it another way, he proves the grace of God in having saved him by his very intentional denial of self. His intentional denial of self. Rather than acting like the man of the world who always has his back up, always looking for insults or attacks or injuries, always holding a grudge, always serving his own interests as the first priority, a Christian walking in self-denial is indifferent to such self-seeking. We see multiple examples of this from God's word. It is Abraham giving the best land to his greedy nephew, Lot. It is Joseph embracing and serving his hateful brothers who had wronged him so terribly. It is David who refused to take advantage of key opportunities to kill Saul, King Saul that is, who was himself seeking to unjustly destroy David. And it is Stephen, Stephen praying for those who were stoning him to death. In each of these examples, we see the spirit of our Lord's teaching from Matthew 5, 38 through 42. And we see most of all what can only be true of a man or woman who has been born again by the spirit of God. Think about this. What Jesus is calling for in Matthew 5, 38 to 42 is a life which cannot be imitated by man's natural strength. None of us have the will, none of us have the desire as sinners to endure personal injury without retaliating. Taking revenge is the native air we breathe. Hence the kind of person Jesus is therefore describing in this passage is someone who has experienced the transforming power of God's saving grace in Christ. But if such an experience is true of us here today, then we must feel the weight and sanctified pressure of Matthew 5, 38 to 42 to continue growing in grace where we die to our personal opinions where we die to our personal preferences, we die to our personal reputation, we die to the need for the world to approve us. We die to that. And by dying to self in this way, we press on to count all things lost in comparison to knowing, loving, and obeying Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus, when our dignity is insulted, and it will be, when our security is defrauded, and it will be, when our liberty is molested, and it will be, and our property is infringed, and it will be, then by God's sanctifying grace, our first response will not be to hit back, but to show patience and kindness and a selfless serving, thereby pointing our enemies to Jesus Christ our Lord. I close with these words from Charles Spurgeon as he himself contemplated what Jesus is calling us to in Matthew 5, 38 to 42. Follow along with me here. This is very good and most convicting. Non-resistance and forbearance are to be the rule among Christians. They are to endure personal ill usage without coming to blows. 
They are to be as the anvil when bad men are the hammers, and thus they are to overcome by patient forgiveness. The rule of the judgment seat is not for common life, but the rule of the cross and the all-enduring sufferer is for us all. Well put. Very fitly spoken. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, we thank you, Lord, when your word convicts us, opens up our hearts, and deals very deeply and honestly with our selfishness, with our self-serving, with our self-centeredness, Lord. And we thank you, Father, for how your word this evening has done just that, exposing in all of us how much more dying to self is needed and yet showing us the way of the cross that is to be our way as the followers of Christ, the normal way of living, and yet a life that is so otherworldly that just stands out from what this world stands for. And Father, we thank you tonight that you have given us everything we need in Christ to be such persons as has been so described. But we also ask your forgiveness by the blood and righteousness of Christ our Lord for every time, Father, that, that we have retaliated, that we have we have paid evil for evil, that we have refused to feed our enemy or give them something to drink, that, that we have simply acted like them. We pray, Father, for a greater work in our hearts by the Spirit of God to repent of such sin as this, sin that is denying our neighbor that neighbor love that you command us to have for all, even our very enemies, where we do the good to them that we would wish and want them to do to us. We therefore look to you and we trust in you tonight, Lord, for the furtherance of our sanctification personally and collectively as a church in these graces, graces we have in Christ, graces we are to pursue in Christ, for Christ's sake, and in his name we pray, amen and amen.